You're listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, a weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht, Benjamin Pieske and Sam Gartner, designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by your work. Today, we are talking about the analysis of adverse events done right. Really, really interesting interview with Kaspar and Jan, so stay tuned. When I started in my career as a statistician in the clinical world, I was wondering about safety analysis. And then I digged a little bit deeper into it, and then I thought, well, that's always the same. We just count the patients who have an event, job done, and then just repeat. But it's not that simple, especially in more complex situations where you have different follow-up times and things like that. Then the patients that actually stay longer on treatment and that helps them get more adverse events. And it looks like the adverse event profile is worse for the really good treatment. So how can you account for that? Stay tuned for this really nice interview with Kasper and Jan, who are both experts in this area. You can also check the show notes because there's lots of additional links and resources that we are mentioning throughout this episode. I'm producing this podcast in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the video-on-demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars, and much, much more. Head over to the PSI website at psiweb.org learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. Welcome to another podcast episode of The Effective Statistician. Today we are talking about a very, very interesting topic. And for that, we have a couple of very interesting guests. But first, hi, Benjamin, how are you doing today? Alexander, very well. It's a nice sunny morning. It's really like, like you know, spring is finally coming, I hope. I mean, it's in the middle of April when we record this episode, but it's quite nice today. Yep. And we have Jan and Kasper here. Kasper, you have been on the podcast already once, so great to have you back. Yeah. Hi, everyone. And uh, thanks for the invite. And Jan, someone from Ulm, where quite close to where I lived for, for two years in Biberach. Welcome to have you also on the show. Yeah, hi, everyone. Thanks for inviting me too. And um, yeah, it's my first time. Yeah, great. Jan, maybe you can speak a little bit about your career up to now and what got you involved into this project. Oh, so I'm, I'm professor of biostatistics at Ulm University where we have a study program, mathematical biometry. So we have a substantial interest in biostatistics and applications in the life sciences, including that in the pharmaceutical industry. I'm originally a mathematician by training, started out in mathematical statistics. That was something between black and gray. So I turned to more applied stuff and obtained my PhD in Freiburg while at the medical biometry unit there of the University Hospital Center Freiburg. And let's say I'm interested in, in all things event history analysis. So that's a very brief okay. sketch. Okay. Yeah, then that fits perfectly into the topic of course. And Kaspar, you have been on the podcast already, so you can scroll back a little bit to, to learn more about him. And yeah, today we are talking about something that it's a really, really interesting thing. It evolved over a long, long period of time and was a, was a hot topic for quite some time. It has something to do with estimates. And this has something to do with oncology. And the acronym we are talking about today is, and I'm not sure whether I, you know, uh, say it correctly, SAVI. <laughs> or how do you pronounce it? Casper, SAVI, yeah. yeah. SAVI is correct. I mean, we, 
That, that's the the term yeah. we use in in, in, in yeah. German Swiss English. But but I think <laughs> <laughs> we're both not we're all not native speakers. But yeah, savvy is correct, isn't it? Or, or savvy. Well, what does it stand for? Maybe the question from the outside. Yeah, yeah. Survival analysis for adverse events with varying follow-up times. And you'll find the letters in that order in this long sentence okay. if, you are, <laughs> if you are creative. Yeah. Okay, so varying follow-up times. So that means you have basically a study where you're comparing two different treatments. Say, you know, two different groups of patients get into two different groups of uh, treatments. And then for whatever reasons, one treatment has, let's say, you know, a median duration of six months and the other one has a median duration of, of 12 months. And um, so if you look into kind of time to end of treatment, these Kaplan-Meier curves um, look very, very different to each other. So how is that a problem in, in oncology? And where is this problem coming from in oncology? Kasper, maybe you want to start? So one way to look at this very simply is... Imagine you have a treatment that is very effective. So you have an overall survival hazard ratio of 0.5. So on average, if we make things very simple, every patient on the treatment arm is under observation for double the amount of time compared to a patient on the control arm. Now, if you look into the occurrence of adverse events and you simply count the adverse events and divide them by the number of patients, a quantity that we call incidence proportion and that we are all very familiar of using in clinical trials. Of course, you most likely will find more adverse events in that group that has doubled the survival. So ultimately the question is, is that a fair comparison? So that is kind of a key question. If the follow-up is so different okay. or the time at risk is so different, just counting the number of patients with a given AE divided by the group size might not be estimating the thing we want to potentially know, namely the probability of an adverse event uh, in an appropriate way. Uh, but before I hand over to Jan, I would uh, want to, to make one other comment. This is not at all specific to oncology. This applies to all kinds of therapeutic areas where we are interested in assessing the risk of an AE. Yeah. Okay. Or maybe not even an AE could be anything, isn't it? Any event. If you're interested in the probability of a, of a certain event happening, yeah, yeah maybe yeah. We, can, we can discuss about that uh, also later. Yeah, I, I, I fully agree with that. And I think one starting point for Savi was that although essentially evolving in the, same, in the very same trial, we're using different statistical methodology for efficacy and for safety. That is a puzzling thing, to, to say the least. But um, to, to back up what Casper uh, has just said, um, Savi evolved from, from a couple of different projects or workshops, maybe. And um, one was a workshop of the uh, working group therapy research of the German Society for, what is it, Medical Informatics, Biometrics and Epidemiology, GMDS. And, and they had a workshop on this topic in, I think, 2014. And that evolved yeah. in a special issue on the analysis of adverse events in pharmaceutical research. And um, I'm talking about that because Ralf Bender, Lars Beckmann and Stefan Lange from the ICWIC, the German HDA, they, they have a very interesting paper in, in that special issue. And it describes examples that Kasper has just explained. There's one example where arguably the increased proportion of adverse events in, in the experimental was due to the fact that the treatment was effective. There was substantial prolonged survival and for me, the freaky thing, as explained in that paper, was that uh, the company, to some extent, discussed that the safety profile of their drug was worse. But the reason, my read, the reason really was prolonged survival in the first place. And on the other hand, the ICWIC, the German HTA, was not too happy with the analysis, but um, to the best of my knowledge, they never solved the issue. 
and 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 this is this is where Sebi wants to make a contribution because it is almost absurd, you could say, that that you that you have mm-hmm. safety concerns about a drug, but the safety concerns solely, maybe solely, stem from the fact that you have prolonged survival, and these if these are uh, initially truly ill patients, as cancer patients are or may be then you will also see more adverse events. But as Kasper said, I want to back that up too. Um, I guess oncology may be a major field, but um, um, I'd say whenever you have a treatment effect that prolongs survival or prolongs time to event in general, that might also have an impact on the monitoring of adverse events and where you have what we call competing events. Could, for instance, be uh, death from other causes if the primary outcome is cardiovascular death or, let's say, in, in, in trials in COVID-19 treatment. The aim is to speed up recovery. Uh, so you have a time to event. If that duration is, in this case, not prolonged but shortened, that is much better for the patient. But um, patients may, of course, also die. And, and then you have all these things together that might compromise the analysis of adverse events if you're using overly mm-hmm. simplistic methods. So it could also work in the other way around. Yeah? So, so if you have, you know, whenever you respond, you stop treatment and then you have the time to response and you measure only the adverse events under treatment, then of course a very effective treatment would have much less exposure time than, uh, you know, not so effective treatment. And so you would have then, you know, less adverse events uh, on the more effective treatment just because you have less exposure, and isn't it? I would think so, yes. Uh, I mean, typically we, we think the other way around. We think survival, we think time to death, and then prolonging survival is the thing to go for. But um, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and maybe I can add to that. Very interestingly, when I train people internally on this topic, I would often ask if we want to uh, assess whether a treatment prolongs survival, would we just kind of have a randomized trial, staggered entry, and then we cut the data after three years, and we would just count those who died, divide by the group size, and then compare these two proportions. And everybody would say, that's not how we should do things. We would never do that. But if you then move on to safety, that's exactly what we do. So that hopefully illustrates this discrepancy between efficacy and safety. And that also surfaces very, very quickly. Sometimes we have trials where an an AE type of endpoint is the primary endpoint. And then very quickly, the discussion is very different from this usual AE analysis we are doing. And it's, it's mm-hmm. just striking that we are using kind of one, one type of mindset for efficacy and for safety, we, we don't seem to apply um, the same kind of mindset. And this is even more striking as the methods that we should use to account for all these features, kind of varying follow-up staggered entry, competing events, as Jan was saying. These methods, they are established for, for decades. Um, that's maybe also something we can, we can talk on later. So it's, it's very, very surprising that, at least to me, that we are not given the, the enough priority to how we analyze safety data. And even more ironically, that one method that we often use to estimate the probability of event actually overestimates that probability of event. So that's this famous one minus couple of Meyer estimates. So we are kind of punishing ourselves for no good reason. And that is surprising to me. I find it really interesting what you say in that regard that I was always thinking kind of from the estimate situation. In the end, you're interested in a benefit risk assessment. And if you have a benefit risk assessment, I think you have the same kind of estimate approach in the for the benefit as for the risk because you know from you want to make have the same kind of decision in mind you want to have the same population in mind of course you have different endpoints in mind yeah but kind of you want to have kind of the same strategy uh, approach there 
because otherwise, what's the decision that you are actually evaluating? What's the kind of, you know, you can't have for the benefit one decision and for the risk another. You can only have one decision, yeah? You can't choose whether, you know, uh, if you have a, if you select your treatment, you can't choose, oh, for the efficacy, I'll want to have that thing. And for uh, safety, you want to have the other thing. You can only have one. Yeah. So I think that is really important that we have a more unified approach in terms of uh, the estimates uh, on both the efficacy and the safety side. Very good. What is then the, the you know, the, the kind of the, the starting point in your working group to really handle the problems that we just mentioned, or maybe combine the different views of, you know, the, the methodologies, but also looking one side efficacy and the other side safety at the same time. So what is the approach that you are taking there? I, I completely agree to what you're saying, uh, Alexander. And I think one aspect that we need to, to keep in mind is for efficacy, we focus so much on determining a primary endpoint and maybe a few key secondary endpoints. And then we invest a lot of energy in properly define these, properly um, assess these. And I think uh, one aspect that, that needs to be discussed in this context is what is actually the goal of our safety analysis? And I see at least two goals. Um, one goal is kind of yeah. rough signal detection, if you want. And I think when we think of how we routinely report safety in clinical trials, we have these endless tables where we have all these AEs, and then we look at the proportion, this incidence proportion in the two arms, and maybe some kind of relative uh, effect measure, and then we try to filter those out that are maybe different, and then we start to assess, is this difference now clinically meaningful? Uh, you have all these statistical challenges with this approach, like multiple, I mean, I wouldn't call it multiple testing, but if you look at many things just by chance, some of them will pop up, even if there is no underlying difference. So that is one goal of safety. The other goal of safety, and that is maybe what would more relate to a benefit risk assessment is if you define a small set of AEs of interest for which you then want to have an accurate assessment or an accurate estimate of the probability of that AE uh, actually happening. And, and then you would, I think it, make, it will make sense to invest more energy there as well and define these endpoints properly, define the estimate, define the thing you want mm -hmm. to estimate. And then, and that is one of the big benefits of the estimate addendum, then align the data collection strategy to the thing you want to estimate. And my, my call here would be that we dis make a distinction between these two goals and not just look at these tables of AEs. Uh, and then if you, are if you are actually interested in the probability of AE, just take the numbers from these tables. Uh, I think then we would need to account for competing events, staggered follow-up and, and all these aspects and properly estimate the probability of an AE. I mean, is, is that a methodological question? So what, what do we do in terms of statistics or are you interested in, in, in the kind of uh, fun discussions that we have? Pardon? Let's start with the methodology. No, let's start with the methodology, kind of where, where uh, this is aiming at. Right. Let's see. I think for me... One basic step is to, to really remind ourselves why we do survival analysis in the first place. And, and Kaspar had a, had a nice uh, argument in a nutshell early on when, when he explained how when he does uh, in-house training, that everybody agrees that for, for time to death, uh, you should not simply count the number of deaths and divide by sample size um, because we have sensor data. And, and, and that really that really is the starting point. Um, so, I mean, the usual textbook tale is uh, uh, we have time to death data. Alas, for the statistician, not everyone dies. So we have an information loss leading to censoring. And, and then we do something else. And, and then that often in the textbooks is a couple of mire. But um, 
the starting point here is that this is true for both efficacy and safety for the occurrence of adverse events that is connected to varying follow-up times and the methodological backbone of uh, survivor methods and also of, of Kaplan-Meier is the analysis of hazards. So the way we go about this is looking into um, the hazards of adverse events and um, let's say any event that may preclude or stop observing adverse events, um, let's say such as uh, death before you have experienced the adverse event that you're currently investigating. And um, put simply, um, one, one method I understand in safety analysis is to look at uh, the incidence density or incidence rate, as they call it. So number of adverse events, uh, let's say first adverse events divided by patient time at risk. And that is a very simple parametric hazard estimator. But you could also do it, let's say, if death is that other event that may happen before you have that adverse event, you also do the calculation um, for, for the death event. And then you have two incidence densities and you try to put them into perspective. And going back to that um, paper by Ralph Bender that I talked about, where they had prolonged survival and an increased number of adverse events, you might have the same incidence density of adverse events but if you have a prolonged survival and, and that instance, incidence density of an adverse event is unchanged, it ticks at the same rate, if you will. And it, if, if it does so every day anew and you have more days, you will see more adverse events. So that disentangles matters. So it really depends also on when these events occur. Yeah. So I think if you would have... A typical event that only occurs, you know, directly after start of treatment, it actually wouldn't change a lot. Yeah, because you don't have any censoring usually, or, you know, a lot of censoring very, very early in treatment. So uh, then, you know, the analysis would be the same. But if you have events that only occur quite after some time, then, you know, you see the effect becomes even bigger. Yeah, because then you have much more people censored before, you know, the, the events even have the, have the opportunity to show up. And so if there's a certain method of actions behind where kind of more the cumulative dose over time uh, triggers something, then um, these types of uh, adverse events, you have a, you know, completely distorted view of things. Yes, there are a number of factors coming into play. And, and as you say, if, if everything occurs in, into a well-defined um, time span and, and if that is not subject to censoring, if these time spans are essentially identical, at least across arms, if not across patients, preferably so, then I'd also say that a lot of these difficulties uh, disappear. However, how these possible sources sources of possible bias actually affect your results um, um, th that is that is a quite involved um, thing to investigate and um, so what we've done in Savi is um, come up with a methodological meta-analysis across a lot of uh, pharmaceutical companies and where we have tried to, or where we aim to investigate um, um, these differences in investigating AE risk using different methods. And uh, we also investigated um, the possible impact of, well, the amount of censoring, the amount of what I call a competing event, such as death, uh, the, the impact of follow-up time, and um, it, it Kaspar, maybe maybe you can shed more light than I can, but um, it, it is a pretty involved picture. One reason being that, of course, the amount of competing events also de depends on the amount of censoring and vice versa. And um, let's say 
A colleague of mine, Thomas Gertz, when asked about using more sophisticated methods, um, his answer is if you if you have uh, fake money in, in one pocket and real money in the other pocket, which money do you use to, to pay what you're currently buying? And he prefers the real money. So maybe, I guess there are, there are situations where you, I shouldn't say overshoot, but uh, but uh, uh, maybe the methods we're talking about here are not always needed, but they will typically not go wrong. Okay, okay. Yeah, I think that's a great recommendation. You know, make it as sophisticated as needed, not as possible. Yeah. <laughs> Kaspar, so... Maybe you can speak a little bit about the different approaches you have looked into. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and exactly. So maybe it's time to also give some indication about how large are these biases. If we say we should make it as simple as possible, um, and, and does it actually matter? Do we need more? complicated methods if you want even although even those methods that that account for all these features are not that complicated um, so the way we approach this in savvy is that 10 sponsors nine pharmaceutical companies and one academic trial center provided 17 randomized trials that have finished read out already and from all therapeutic areas so it's not only oncology it's also other therapeutic areas like um, uh, cardiovascular and i think um, uh, ms multiple sclerosis etc and then we defined uh, a few aes in all of these trials and we defined a set of competing events and then we applied a bunch of estimators to these aes and benchmarked them against what we call the gold standard. And the gold standard is the Allen Johansson estimator because that is a non-parametric estimator that accounts for varying follow-up time, censoring, uh, and competing events. At And you can think of the Allen Johansson estimator as a straightforward non-parametric generalization of Kaplan-Meier to the situation mm -hmm. where you actually have uh, competing events. Um, okay, so if we... First, start with the incidence proportion. That is the prevalent estimator we use, or estimator. It's actually not really an estimator. It's just the prevalent approach we use because we are not so clear what we're actually estimating in safety analysis very often. But that is this number we compute by just counting the number of AEs divided by the group size. And if you benchmark that against Allen Johansson in these 17 trials, and we actually looked at 186 AEs mm -hmm. combined from these 17 trials, you find that the incidence proportion generally underestimates the probability of an AE, and that can happen up to a factor of three. So instead of kind of, you have a 12% probability of an AE that you would receive with Allen Johansson wow. for a given AE, sometimes when you just use this incidence proportion, you only get 4%, okay? So that gives you an indication of the extent of the bias for the incidence proportion. If on the other hand, you estimate the probability of an AE by just taking Kaplan-Meier and censoring at competing events. So if a patient dies, you would just censor that patient and then you compute time to AE. We know this is not what you should do. This has been discussed in the literature extensively but what we find in in savvy is that with this one minus couple meyer estimate you actually overestimate the probability of an ae up to a factor of five sometimes so why would you want to do that just because you're lazy you're just using a method you know very well you censor the competing events sometimes you overestimate by a factor of five and and this is even worse as the kind of unbiased estimate is pretty simple. It's available in all uh, software packages and you need to invest a little bit. You need to de properly define the competing events, but then you can actually use that. And the follow-up question then is, so this is estimation of an AE probability in one arm, in one group. 
underestimation using the incidence proportion, overestimation using one minus Kaplan-Meier. But what happens then if you divide the two when you want a relative comparison between two treatment arms? And, uh, and there, it's interesting that for the incidence proportion, on average, you actually do quite well. So you divide yep. two biased estimators yep. and then you, very loosely speaking, you end up with a halfway unbiased estimator. But that wouldn't justify the use of the incidence proportion still. But this is just what we found in SAVI. Okay? And, uh, and for Kaplan-Meier, uh, typically you underestimate the relative uh, effect. And eventually what we then did is eventually ends up in labels, in drug labels, are kind of labels mm -hmm. like uh, an adverse event is, hap is happening very rarely, rarely, uncommonly, commonly, or very commonly. For example, these are SMPC frequency categories put forward by EMA. And you then categorize these 186 AEs into these categories using the incidence proportion and using Allen Johansson. And then you find that sometimes you really would make a different decision. Okay. So that doesn't happen so often for estimation of an AE in just one arm. And these tables, you find them in the Savvy publications, but it happens actually to a quite scary extent when you look at the relative measure. So I, I, I can just read off that table. If you take the gold standard Allen Johansson estimator, you estimate the relative risk. You can Sometimes you conclude that this is risk is major from the treatment compared to the control. And if you would use the, the hazard ratio from a Cox regression, where you just censor the competing events, you would actually estimate in certain cases that this risk poses no difference. So you either had a major difference using an unbiased method and with the kind of standard method that we often use, you would conclude there is no effect between the two arms. And in my opinion, that is quite uh, scary and something we really need to look into. Can you, for those that are not so familiar with time to event analysis, can you explain a little bit what the Arne Johansson estimator does differently to the Kaplan-Meier estimator, which probably all are familiar with? In a nutshell, what Kaplan-Meier aims to do is or one minus Kaplan-Meier. One minus Kaplan-Meier aims to approximate an empirical distribution function. Number of events up to a certain point in time divided by sample size. And the approximation comes from the fact that we do not know the number of events. We only know the number of observed events. And the reason is censoring. So one minus Kaplan-Meier is approximating this. Done, in a nutshell. And now... If you look at the step functions of Kaplan-Meier, there, of course, you have these steps when you observe events. And all you do is this approximation of an empirical distribution function. You split that up in additive fashion in your approximation mm -hmm. of the empirical subdistribution function for, let's say, an adverse event plus the empirical subdistribution function for, let's say, death before the adverse event could have potentially occurred for that patient. And I think a good check always is to have a look into what happens if you have no censoring at all. And then what Orn Johansson mm -hmm. does is, it is simply the number of adverse events up to a certain point in time divided by sample size, which is perfectly okay in the absence of censoring. And Kaplan-Meier is the number of survivors divided by sample size. And that eventually, over course of time, if you track down everyone, will drop down to zero because everyone dies at the end of the day in a super long trial let's say, but not everyone would, un would experience the adverse event under investigation. The that is the reason for the, the bias that you have when using one minus Kaplan-Meier. 
And the trick is really to um, to split up coupler Meyer into one minus coupler Meyer into two additive parts for the um, respective events. It is it is very easy. It's it's a two line computation really. What you do is you you scribble out what coupler one minus coupler Meyer is. It's it's the sum over all event times, and your summand is the coupler Meyer estimator previous to the event time in question times number of events divided by the size of the risk set. And that number of events divided by the size of the risk set, you divide that up in number of, let's say, adverse events divided by the size of the risk set plus mm. number of competing events divided by the size of the risk set. And that's all. There's a deep mathematical theory underneath it, which is product integration. So that is fun. But you don't have to do that. And Casper repeatedly stressed that it has been there in the in the literature okay. for, for decades, really. Um, but there has also been a recent literature search um, published in the Journal of Clinical Epidemiology by Van Balraven and colleagues, claiming that maybe something, and they looked at the quality medical research papers, right? Not at the tabloids. They looked at the quality medical research papers, New England Journal of Medicine, on The Lancet, etc., cetera, uh, claiming that maybe um, almost 50% of all published Kaplan-Meier curves are subject to the kind of bias that we're currently talking about and with the possible impact that Kasper nicely summarized. Uh, so I think, first of all, that is scary too. And that, again, illustrates that, um, as, as we discussed earlier, it's not just about safety. Um, it, it, is, it is possibly an issue in general, but um, maybe more prevalent with AE data. Okay, okay. Uh, by the way, we'll put all these links to those different things that we discussed about into the show notes. So just head over to the effective statistician.com and then search for this episode and oh, just Savvy, S-A-V-V-Y, and then you'll uh, easily find this episode. Turning to another point, what is so special about the collaboration here? Because... It's, it's a pretty unique setup. So many companies, you know, and also academia, and then also all these these studies with individual patient level data. How how did you manage that? That's that's two questions at a time. So I think what's special about it is <laughs> it is is easier to to answer maybe. So for me, but Kasper, please feel free to add. It's a fun collaboration uh, professionally of academia, both academia and, and companies. And it's really companies. It's plural. It's not just one company with a joint aim to join forces to solve a common methodological problem. That would be my brief summary. I, I don't know, Kasper, what, what would you say? No, I agree to that. And Alexander, you were mentioning a few points and that speak to the success of Savvy. Um, I think one very important aspect was that a lot of these people, whether they work in academia or pharma industry or even with the regulators, uh, they know each other very well. And, and there was a certain trust uh, available already from the beginning. And I think that helped a lot. Uh, and then there was the common goal um, in, in, in current corporate speak, you would call it the North Star. Uh, you want to make sure that we... we take steps in a direction where safety analyses are improved. And we have one, I'm thinking of specific, specifically one trial where we observe more AEs, but we also observe a big overall survival hazard ratio. And if you actually account for that, you actually find that the AE risk is lower in the treatment arm. But if you just count the numbers in a very naive way, you find you have actually worse safety signal. And, and I mean, we want to fix that. We want to make give a proper account of treatments. So I think that was another very important point. Um, and then more on the logistical side, uh, I think what contributed a lot to how that SAVI became possible is the fact that we never shared individual patient data. Um, so, and, and maybe I can quickly describe the setup. We 
put together data from 17 RCTs. And the way this was done was that our academic colleagues, they wrote macros in SOS and R. So maybe start from the beginning. First, we defined a data structure that within the company, you put these trials into that data structure. So which AEs you look at, what are competing events, and then you assign flags and you do that. Um, And based on that data structure, our academic colleagues developed macros okay, uh, in SAS and R. And these macros were shared with all the sponsors. And then within the sponsor company, you would run these macros and these macros would then extract these estimated probabilities of AEs for five different estimators. And then we would only return these estimated probabilities of AEs back to the academic trial center. And they would then perform a meta-analysis on these probability, estimated probability of AE data. And these then ended up in the analysis I very briefly sketched before, where you then get this underestimation up to a factor of three, overestimation up to a factor of five. You look at all these categories. And that facilitated putting together these 17 RCTs. I think we would not be where we are today with Savvy if we would have tried to organize individual patient data sharing and, and putting it all together in a central place from all these companies. I think that would simply have not worked. Um, and, and so, and I think this is a learning beyond all the content that we generate in Savvy. This is a template for a collaboration that is potentially also applicable uh, for other type of questions. Yep. Yeah, and especially when you when you started to mention that this is a macro, like the preparation of it. I mean, getting the data and then just playing around, that's that's comparably easy. But really putting the planning in place and, and really send over macros that work with, I don't know, a number of, uh, you know, randomized trials, that's just awesome. So it just gives them a different um, dimension in terms of organization and commitment. So that's it's a really great story. Really. Yeah, um, ho- hopefully where we... In, in Savi so far, we have aimed to answer methodological question, but um, the, the future plan will also to be to to address specific therapeutic areas. But uh, Alexander, in terms of management, um, there there are really a number of of people that that we haven't talked about yet, uh, without whom Savi would have simply been Im- impossible. It would some something that we might be talking about today still over coffee but um, would not have happened. And um, that, that is, of course, Tim Friede from, from Göttingen and, and Claudia Schmor, with, with whom well, Claudia was a leading force be, behind that um, GMDS workshop that I talked about earlier, and that led to that uh, special issue in the Pharmaceutical Statistics Journal. And then almost in parallel, Tim, Claudia, and me, we, we discussed uh, putting the the concerns that were around in into an effort like that that became savvy. Well, Casper and me, we were together today here on the program, but um, a lot of the hard work, uh, writing the macros, doing all organizational bits, was done by Regina Steke as part of her PhD thesis at the University of Ulm. And so, yeah, Casper, what would you say? I'd say it's 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 really a big shout out to Regina, Claudia, and Tim. And there have, of course, been been people from the industry alongside Kaspar who, who have been very supportive. So initially, when we were kicking around this idea, I had the impression that, that maybe it's a nice idea, but it, it doesn't really take off. And uh, then we had an organized session on adverse event analysis uh, at the Central European Network, ISPS, to meeting in Vienna in 2017. And then within a month after that, Katrin Coopers of uh, BMS, they committed themselves. And then Casper uh, was a key player. Uh, Roche was a key player. And uh, Valentin Yale from Novartis was a key player. And then things just came together. And as Casper said, um, we most of us knew each other personally from from um, conferences, workshops. Casper and me, we actually go back to days in academia in, in Zurich, uh, almost 15 years, and then it took off. Awesome. Yeah. 
It's a great example of collaboration between like-minded statisticians. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, and it's and it's open source knowledge. So it needs to be organized. But uh, the way we went about it is we we came up with a statistical analysis plan and we turned that into a methodological paper, which has seen the light of day and. The Biometrical Journal, Regina Stegher is the first author. So that is a template for methodological investigation like this that you can transport to, to other questions, obviously. And it, it does come with the source code for, for the in-house analysis, um, as Kasper explained, that were run at, at the uh, specific pharmaceutical companies and it comes with a source code for the meta-analysis that was centrally run um, at the academic institution. So um, the stuff is out there and uh, it's, it's free to reuse it for related questions. Yeah, and maybe if I can add to that. So I think we initially, as usual, we completely underestimated what this will mean. Yes, uh, because you would think you define the data structure, everybody, everybody puts the trials in that data structure, you run the macros and two weeks later you're done. Uh, and then we ended up doing a pilot study. We had a few companies, a handful of companies participating in a pilot, uh, developing the macros, and that took much longer than we thought. If you then run these, these macros, you, you just develop them first round, and then you run them, you find this problem. Ah, in this trial, we have this very special feature. Ah, we need to update that. Aha, everybody's using a different SaaS version. Ah, okay, this means that. And uh, so we should, we, I, I don't think we want to, to pretend that this was easy. No. Uh, but, but that even makes it a bigger achievement. I think that we persevered and, and really went through. Um, and a, a big shout out to everybody involved. So the people Jan mentioned on the academic side and everybody in the companies who actually put that through and organized the data and applied the macros and fed back what they found. Uh, so this, this is a, it's a big thing, in my opinion. And uh, maybe just to add one more point for us in pharmaceutical industry and maybe even in academia. These points that we are underpinning with Savvy, they have been made for decades. A lot of people said it's not accurate what we do. Uh, the methods are here. Why are you not using them? So that's one point of view. But if, if these methods are never used, then at some point, I think you need to try to take a different approach that, that people start to use it. And you need to convince uh, everybody involved that what we are doing is not what we are supposed to do. And uh, I think here that you apply it to real RCT data and that you make it very concrete and you illustrate the impact on labels. Hopefully, sometimes, at some point, we will start to see different analyses. And I always use that kind of image of this is safety analysis in regulatory RCTs is like a tanker. And, uh, and hopefully we can have this tanker turn the, turn the direction a little bit. And we a lot of people have tried in the last decades, and I think with very little success. And, and maybe here we, we can we can start to change. I think that goes back to a theme that we have pretty common here in the in the podcast. It's about you have all the logic on your side, but still things don't move. Yes. So uh, you need to have other ways to influence people and you need to kind of step into their world to show kind of what it means. And I think that is exactly what you did with the actual RCT data to show that, well, it's not about just simulations and made up data. It's about actual compounds, actual, you know, impact in different studies. And it's, you know, showing that really kind of how big the impact can be, yeah? Threefold, fivefold, yeah? And that helps people to understand that, oh, there's really a problem. And it's not just kind of mathematical problems that might occur in some, you know, rare occasions that we don't necessarily need about, yeah? And so um, I think that is especially, you know, uh, what we as statisticians need to become much better at is stepping into the shoes of our audience. Yeah. What do they care about? And the physicians care about the safety of the, of the patients and the regulators care about, you know, 
what they've write into their labels. <laughs> and so showing them you know, the impact of that in their ways, in their terms, is a really, really powerful way to, to change the overall game in terms of safety analysis. Yeah, that, that's that's right. I, I should give credit to Tim Friede, who in 2016 he he challenged me. That's that's all swell, but does it make a difference in practice? And um, that was that, that's something that Savvy has demonstrated on a scale that we have not seen before. I, I think that is fair to claim. So as Kasper said, it, it has been there for decades um, in, in tons of papers, typically demonstrating matters um, using simulated data, of course, and then you can come up with anything that, that pleases you. And, and again, mentioning COVID-19, there, there's a paper using simulated data, again, making the very same point for COVID-19 treatments, but Right, we're using real data, and that has been there before too, but not on the scale, meta-analyzed across many adverse events and, and a range of trials. So, so that, that is really um, different from, from an applied perspective. And I th probably we're, we're also the first, and then on the scale, as, as just discussed, um, also looking at group comparisons, because typically... The discussion focus on, let's say, uh, the old Kaplan-Meier estimator, that is overestimating. So if you're overestimating in your experimental arm and in your control arm, what does that mean in terms of group comparison? And, and that is something that I wouldn't know where to find safe for Savi. I think the other point is that you started is, and which is an important thing if you think about change management, is you have, uh, you build not, you know, not just work with one company or two companies, you worked with many companies. And if you want to change an industry, you need to have some kind of guiding coalition. And I think that is another great, great thing that you not stop with, oh, we have Rush on board. That's fine. Let's move forward. But you actually uh, moved forward with lots of, lots of different companies and were very, very inclusive there. And despite the additional challenges with different SaaS <laughs> environments and, and different study setups and, and additional kind of uh, problems on that side. But now you have, you know, advocates for that in lots of different companies. And that makes things much easier. It actually also makes things easier within the company. Yeah, I, I know that, you know, when you are just talking within your company and you have this point, it's actually great, but it's... Mm, even better if you can point to some other uh, competitors and say, they actually do that as well. Yeah. So, you know, the, the profit in the own land is, is usually not heard, but, but if you can refer to some other profits as well, it's much more powerful. Yeah. 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 Yes, uh, of course. And I mean, we want more accurate estimates of probability of adverse events and, um, accounting for all these features and if we can help establishing that maybe in 10 years 20 years then uh, that would be great and um, yeah I, I mean uh, Alexander you mentioned the estimate and the addendum before um, it is possible uh, although you, you can argue this this is very difficult and you might not be happy with the direction of the estimate addendum but we see now it has a huge impact and it is possible to to impact things uh, how we do things although there is of course inertia because um, we have all these established ways established systems people are used to um, it, it takes some effort but it, this is for me kind of the illustration or the example that things can be changed um, and let's see where where we get with with savvy and the analysis of safety data and clinical trials yeah, yeah i think this was this was the idea why to put together um, a large group and personal contacts helped the typical mindset was that everyone was willing to contribute precisely for for the reasons alexander that that you have just mentioned and I'm, i mean at the end of the day Kaspar, um, the aim would be to improve guidelines, right? 
where can people actually learn more about Savvy? So where can they find out the more about the project, about the people? As innovative as we are, uh, we are also old school, <laughs> meaning we have no website. I, I, I don't even tweet. <laughs> so you learn about it uh, reading the scholarly papers. And we, we have been very active at conferences, but there is no website that you can go to. But there is a nice homepage from Casper where there's a couple of nice links and we'll, we'll put that into the show notes. Okay, thanks so much. That was an awesome deep dive into uh, Savvy and we had lots of, lots of learnings from it. We understand kind of from a methodological point of view, um, what are the limits of just counting uh, events or uh, looking into the Kaplan-Meier curve we understood kind of that this is not just an oncological uh, problem in oncology, but it's, you know, widespread across lots of different areas. And that it took a couple of people that had the same goal from both companies and academia to work together, overcome lots of hurdles, um, move the needle forward. And now we have something in hand that can help us to convince people to apply the method set, as you stated, have been out there for decades, but now we have really proven how much uh, they can improve things. Any final thoughts from you, Jan? Well, Alexander Benjamin, thanks for having us. It was great talking to you. And um, to everyone who, who listens to this podcast, I think it's safe to say that we are looking for some volunteers who want to Practice, 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 uh, with a future aim of uh, looking in into different fields of application. So, um, not taking any trial, but let's say look into oncology, specific fields of oncology, and and looking into other therapeutic areas to to better understand uh, where these methods maybe matter most, and and what kind of um, difference we see. Um, with respect to subject matter applications. Kaspar, anything from you? Yeah, maybe to conclude, I think what is always helpful is, and that is the spirit of the estimate, then be clear on the objective of what you want to do. Don't just reproduce what you have done in your last trial, in your last analysis. Think about, do you want to do signal detection? Do you want to properly estimate the probability of an AE and then develop uh, the estimant, the estimator, the data collection uh, accordingly. And, uh, and yeah, use the methods that we put forward in Savvy and use to learn. Awesome. Thanks so much. This show was created in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain who helps with the show in the background and thank you for listening. Head over to theeffectivestatistician.com to find the show notes with all the different links. And you can also learn much more through this podcast and through other material on the homepage to boost your career as a statistician in the health sector. Reach your potential, lead great science, and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician. Music